This is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts really could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and December 31st, please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift. Click the Donate button on DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue the programming you have come to expect from us, like those from Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Archbishop George Lucas, and so many more. Please prayerfully consider supporting our mission, which is dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. Thank you, and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Pope Francis, in his encyclical letter, Lumen Fidei, The Light of Faith, said that faith's past, the act of Jesus' love which brought new life to the world, comes down to us through the memory of others, witnesses, and is kept alive in that one remembering subject, which is the Church. The Church is a mother who teaches us to speak the language of faith. In that spirit, this series of conversations with Archbishop Lucas brings the many aspects of the Catholic faith and why it matters, not only to the individual, but also to families, communities, and the world at large. Why it matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. With Archbishop George Lucas, we begin a conversation on Sacra Sanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, which is one of the constitutions of the Second Vatican Council. It was approved by the assembled bishops by a vote of 2,147 to 4 and was promulgated by Pope Paul VI on the 4th of December, 1963. The title is taken from the opening lines of the document and means This Sacred Council. We now begin our conversation with Archbishop Lucas on Sacrosanctum Concilium. Welcome back, Archbishop Lucas. Thank you, Chris. It's always great to be with you. Thank you for venturing into the great wealth of, I just want to say fruitfulness, from the Second Vatican Council. I mean, it continues to feed us today, and it's been literally decades since the gathering. I would say most of the Catholics that are living today weren't alive at the time of the Second Vatican Council. I was. I'm, I'm old enough to have um, remembered it. It began when I was in eighth grade. These conversations are giving me the opportunity to go back and, and to, uh, to read the documents and to meditate on them and to be grateful for the way that the Holy Spirit has been guiding and shaping uh, the church in, in our lifetime, largely because of what was begun at the Second Vatican Council. For many people that experience the council real time, and maybe even the, the children that came afterwards, I would include myself. I'd be dating myself by saying that I was only a year old when they first convened. But the instant reaction would be, Vatican II, what was it? Well, it changed the Mass. That's the thing that maybe stands out more than anything else. And that leap into the liturgy, as it were, that was the very first conversation that the Council Fathers had and the first document, the first constitution, as we'll come to call it, that 
was brought forward to the world. It was an important moment, wasn't it? It was an important moment. And you're right, the practical experience of the Second Vatican Council really was immediately felt in the liturgy, in, in the Mass on Sunday, and in the way that the other sacraments are celebrated. So nothing new was invented then, but we can interpret it certainly as a, uh, an indication that the Council Fathers recognize the central importance of the liturgy. It's there that we encounter the power of the Lord's Paschal Mystery, and where the effect of his Paschal Mystery is made present for us in, in, in our time and place. Since the first generation of the Church, the Sacred Liturgy has, has been right at the heart of the life of disciples of Jesus Christ, right at the heart of the life of the Church. Probably were, were some practical reasons, too, why the The Council Fathers uh, began with this, but it is where they began. And as you say, it has had a sort of practical, a daily, weekly impact on on the lives of Catholics ever since this uh, constitution was promulgated. And and then, of course, it had to be implemented, and that happened over a period of time. You brought the words forward that hadn't really been a part of the vernacular, Catholic vernacular, until the Council, and that is Paschal Mystery. It was something that I'm sure was spoken of and the halls of theology and many other areas. But for the layperson, the exposure into the understanding of what is the Paschal mystery, that was so important to the fathers of this council, wasn't it? It's essential to the life of our faith. It's the unique action of our Heavenly Father sending his Son, Jesus Christ, to not just to be with us, but to lay down his life for us and rise from the dead so that we might rise from our sins so that the power of the resurrection can be applied to us and felt by us. So this has always been true, of course, but you're right, the term Paschal Mystery comes into more regular use and understanding. I'm not sure it's still so widely understood, but it's uh, that mystery into which we are immersed whenever we celebrate the sacred liturgy. I thought what you just said about it's important as placing us in that time and space, in that moment, it's for us, we're inserted into a very real action of God in salvation history. It's key, isn't it, to understanding why the liturgy is sacred. We think of this in two dimensions. So there were real events that happened at a certain moment in human history. Uh, Jesus lived at a a particular time, and he was crucified on a particular day, rose from the dead on on a particular day, ascended into heaven. Those things happened in in the past. But the saving action of uh, God in and through Christ Jesus and, and through the power of his Paschal mystery, that continues. It continues as more than a memory. So we don't just look back and think of what God did once and for all. That is true. We, we do that, and the saving actions of Jesus don't need to be repeated. Jesus is, is alive, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we encounter him in the church, and we encounter him for our salvation, and it is the power of his life, death, and and resurrection encountered in the liturgy and in the sacraments that, that saves us now. An excerpt from Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium. Two, for the liturgy through which the work of our redemption is accomplished, most of all in the divine sacrifice of the Eucharist, is the outstanding means whereby the faithful may express in their lives and manifest to others the mystery of Christ and the real nature of the true Church. It is of the essence of the Church that she be both human and divine, visible, yet invisibly equipped, eager to act and yet intent on contemplation, 
present in this world, and yet not at home in it. And she is all these things, in such wise, that in her the human is directed and subordinated to the divine, the visible likewise to the invisible, action to contemplation, and this present world to that city yet to come, which we seek. While the liturgy daily builds up those who are within into a holy temple of the Lord, into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit, to the mature measure of the fullness of Christ, at the same time it marvelously strengthens their power to preach Christ, and thus shows forth the Church to those who are outside as a sign lifted up among the nations, under which the scattered children of God may be gathered together, until there is one sheepfold and one shepherd. I think that's really, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Archbishop, but it seems to be that encounter was something that they really wanted the church to renew in, to really have an awareness of. Because maybe they felt that, if not all the lay faithful, but many of the lay faithful became disconnected from that saving action in the church's public liturgy and maybe found it more in beautiful, lovely, private devotionals and things like that. Not that those are wrong. Those are lovely things. But maybe that the emphasis was maybe a little out of balance, maybe? I mean, certainly we can take from this Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy the desire of the Council Fathers to draw the lay faithful particularly, but all of us, into a deeper level of experience of what's being celebrated at the liturgy. Its effectiveness doesn't depend on our experience, we we know, and yet we're really missing something if we aren't drawn to participate. It's dangerous to make generalizations, and and I don't want any any of it to sound critical. I grew up, I was a kid in the years before the council, and I'm sure the experience of the of the mass, of the sacraments, then had a great deal to do with my vocation and where I encountered the Lord at the beginning, so I don't in any way want to make it sound like there was something wrong with it. But I think the desire of the Council Fathers was for us to experience more than had been experiencing. I have to say that it would have been the experience of of Catholics on many Sundays, for example, that that they would attend Mass, they would be there, and thank God they were, good for them, good for the Church, and with hearts open, I think, to, to praise God, but not really often either understanding or being able to participate in the actions that are led rightly by the priest, but, but really involve, involve the whole body of Christ. So in this sacred constitution on the liturgy, the, the Second Vatican Council issues a, sort of a challenge and an, and an invitation for liturgical rites to be renewed in a way that will invite more active and conscious participation on, on the part of all of us, each of us in our roles. Not to jump ahead in the document, but that is an important goal of the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, if I can say it that way, is to foster the full and active participation of the laity. And it's not necessarily about lay people lecturing or being greeters, and which are all very important, our lovely ministries, and do contribute to the celebration in, in many wonderful ways. But it's more about what's happening to the person in the pew and how they are experiencing that Paschal mystery. How we're experiencing it and, and invited to participate in the worship of Jesus, offering himself to our Heavenly Father in, to which he draws us. It's the biggest thing that's happening in the whole world. When Mass is going on, it's happening right there in our parish church. It's a world-changing mystery truth that's being celebrated. 
again, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here too, but the end of the Mass, we're, we're sent out, you know, to carry out the mission of Jesus as, as his disciples. And, and that's challenging, and it's, it seems more challenging than ever the, uh, these days. So if, if we haven't allowed ourselves to be really immersed in the truth of, of what saves us, and if we haven't allowed ourselves to take advantage of what's being offered, a deep and personal encounter with the risen Jesus, then we really aren't going to be as well equipped as we could be to, to do the work the Lord gives us the rest of the week. We'll return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, or Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, 
or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Not some graces, not partial, but all graces flow from this action, this liturgical action. I wonder if we have a full realization of that. Yeah, on some days we don't, I'm sure. The action, of course, is, is the action of Jesus, and, and he's inviting us to participate as fully as we can. Why wouldn't we? Why would we hold back? Again, without condemning what happened before, the council was a pivotal moment, certainly in the 20th century, but it continues to shape our experience of our, of our Catholic worship that was designed to really open up this mystery to our understanding and, and then invite our fuller participation. In the Mass, in, in the other sacraments, the Liturgy of the Hours, all of the things that constitute the, what we might say is the official worship of the Church. Ten. Nevertheless, the liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the Church is directed. At the same time, it is the font from which all her power flows. For the aim and object of the apostolic works is that all who are made sons of God by faith and baptism should come together to praise God in the midst of his Church, to take part in the sacrifice, and to eat the Lord's Supper. The liturgy in its turn moves the faithful filled with the Paschal Sacraments to be one in holiness. It prays that they may hold fast in their lives to what they have grasped for by their faith. The renewal in the Eucharist of the covenant between the Lord and man draws the faithful into the compelling love of Christ and sets them on fire. From the liturgy, therefore, and especially from the Eucharist as from a font, Grace is poured upon us, and the sanctification of men in Christ and the glorification of God, to which all other activities of the Church are directed as toward their end, is achieved in the most efficacious possible way. I think it's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, this particular document is mentioned, I want to say, somewhere between 70 to 80 times, the centrality and the importance of what we do in the liturgy. And as you noted, this Constitution not only touches on the Mass, but it touches on every sacrament and even sacramentals and everything that is supposed to awaken our sense of the transcendent nature of the sacred. Uh, right, so our hearts and minds should be set on the world to come, even while we're immersed in in this world, this is right where God, where God wants us, but he doesn't want us to be wandering here aimlessly, and he doesn't want us to dwell in darkness or to, or to fall into the snares of, of the devil. And so we have a, a very a personal and immediate experience of the risen Jesus and of the power of his paschal mystery that is not only available to us, but it, it really is um, required of us, we might say, if we're going to consider ourselves 
full members of the body of Christ, and if we take seriously the vocation to bring the light of the gospel into the world. Again, this particular constitution on the sacred liturgy doesn't necessarily give rules, but more principles or pastoral considerations. That in itself is remarkable, but also it it trusts that the faithful will take time and ponder those considerations, those important elements. It's the heart of what true catechesis is. Right. So it's good for uh, anyone to read this constitution on the liturgy, since since we're all involved in the liturgy uh, regularly as, as part of our, our Catholic life, to really be inspired by the, by the principles that, that are laid out here. What was required uh, next, of course, was that all this had to be implemented in, in practical ways. So there are many, many more documents, many more meetings, publications of liturgical books and, and so forth that flowed from this. This set the ball rolling. But it's not the same thing as a constitution of our country, but this constitution on the, on the sacred liturgy lays a foundation, sets parameters, states principles that, that then have to be fleshed out. And as uh, the church experiences, what was really, as we said earlier, what was really a, a new direction for the way the liturgy was celebrated as, as people experienced it practically. We learn from that and then make some adjustments a, a, along the way. And the recent Holy Fathers, since the time of the Second Vatican Council have been uh, very attentive to doing that, uh, watching, listening to the experience of the church and then helping us make the changes that will be good and then being steadfast in the things that that, uh, that we need to. It was interesting, you know, and I remember from the time of the council, people talk about the new mass and even now you hear words like the Novus Ordo, the new order of things. So it wasn't a new mass. It, it was a reforming of the liturgy, a, a renewal of the liturgy, but very much rooted in our sacred tradition. And like so many things in our life of faith, we experience it as both ancient and new at the same time. I think what we have to bear in mind always as the faithful is what the Father's goal in bringing this forward was the full and active participation of the faithful, the whole communion of people, but also the individual experience in the pew. So that what helps foster that and Taking a look at the different actions in the rituals, for example, it eliminated redundancy. I mean, there was a time when the choir would sing the Gloria, and then the priest would recite the Gloria again. And so they looked at that and said, okay, why are we doing that? Let's try to keep it simple as more sometimes, go back to the original. So those are some of the aims in what they did when they took a look at the actual action in the, the ritual in the liturgy. Yeah, I would say in... You know, the late 1950s, the Mass wasn't celebrated in the same way that it was at the Last Supper or in the first centuries of, of the Church. So things develop over time with the guidance of, of the Holy Spirit. But also uh, pious practices or things that might have been seen as beneficial in, in religious congregations, you know, began to be attached to the, to the liturgy, not affecting the essential nat- nature of it. But they did, you know, affect the experience, how the Mass was celebrated and perceived. And so certainly there were you know, a number of actions or, or words that were repetitious. This constitution says that the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church should, should be characterized by a noble simplicity. So what does that mean? Uh, it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody, but it's a good thing that's being asked of us. And that's how to do that in practice was the, was the challenge in the years following the council in, certain, in some, way, some ways remains. Yeah, noble simplicity. I can't help to think a noble simplicity in action of sitting at a table with our Lord at the very first supper of just sharing the meal and breaking the bread and distributing. And, and the heartbeat is to try to connect to that 
action. So the experience of everyone gathered around the altar, the table, for whatever God has for them in that moment, a receptivity and something that makes it available to them. Well, Jesus was clearly at the center, leading the action, the effective one, the agent, you might say, God's gift to us. And so, you know, we can't recreate the Last Supper, and we don't need to. And if we have a parish community that has thousands of of people, and we have a thousand people coming together for the celebration of the Mass, it's not going to look or feel like the Last Supper. It doesn't, doesn't have to. That's not the point. But there is a real connection to the Last Supper, to Calvary, to Easter Sunday, that the Church means for us to be able to, to see that and experience it, even if we don't name it in that way exactly every time that, that, that we come to Mass. The changes, so-called, that were made in, in the experience of the liturgy at, uh, following the Second Vatican Council were really designed, promulgated, so that the, everyone that participating in the Mass can really participate as fully as possible, allowing the Mass to be celebrated in the language of the people, making sure that, the, that there was a rich experience of the wealth of the scriptures, not all on one Sunday, but, but over time, over a period of years, that we focused in the liturgical year on the central mysteries of our faith, many other celebrations too, that there was a kind of clear sense of the plan of God, of, of what it means to live in the, in the kingdom of God, God's plan for our, our salvation in, in Jesus Christ, that, that those things would be more clear and, and, and more central. We'll continue our conversation with Archbishop Lucas on Sanctum Sanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, in our next episode. You've been listening to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas.